Good afternoon. Thank you again for uh, joining us for today's Friday Gallery Talk. My name is Caroline and I am the Manager of uh, Adult Programs here at the Hirshhorn. Um, today I'm thrilled to have uh, Evan Reed from Georgetown University here with us to talk about George Tooker's The Letterbox from 1953. Um, to give you a little background on Evan Reed, he is the Visiting Assistant Professor and Director of the Spagnuolo Gallery at Georgetown, where he teaches foundational drawing and three-dimensional design. Evan is also an active visual artist who has had exhibitions in New York City, Germany, and here in the D.C. area. In 2012, Evan was awarded the Franz and Virginia Bader Fund grant, in addition to earlier awards, to pursue his creative research, which focuses on large-scale sculpture and drawing. In his most current body of work, he uses architectural forms as the starting point for investigating history and place related to his experiences. As an artist, Evan is also active in his local community. While an artist in residence, he has worked with elementary and middle school children to develop, design, and build their own artworks. Please help me to welcome Evan Reed. Thank you. Okay, um, so what I'm going to do is uh, kind of go through an exercise in looking, and um, we'll talk about, as a group, what we see in the image, and we'll go from sort of an objective to a more subjective interpretation of the, of the work. Um, so some of these things, a lot of you are, are, are uh, fellow faculty at Georgetown, and some of you probably have uh, looked at um, Torker's work in the past. So some things are going to be pretty obvious, but we're going to kind of ease our way into the image um, to maybe kind of settle our, get our mind uh, uh, a little bit more settled and in, in looking deeper into the into the work. Um, so it's sort of a, an objective observation practice or exercise that I, I use with students when we when we do critiques of work. Um, so the first thing I wanted you guys to look at, and if you if you have questions, uh, we'll 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 get to them in the end. But if you have a, um, an answer to my questions, if you can come up a little bit and talk into the microphone also, so that when we do the podcast, you can actually uh, hear the hear the question a little more clearly. So. Um, like I said, some of these things are going to be pretty obvious questions, but it's a way to sort of settle into the into the image. So uh, the first thing uh, is just just sort of identify what kind of artwork is this we're looking at. Is it a it, okay? It's a trompeloy. Uh, is it a sculpture or a painting? So it's a, it's obvious. It's a painting, obviously. Okay. Um, and is it on scale? Is it small, large, intimate? So it's on a it's I'm sorry on a, on a small scale. Uh, relative to things, the other things that are in the room, it's on a sort of a smaller scale, so it has a sort of uh, uh, intimate quality to it. Um, if you uh, looked at it in terms of its, uh, its category of an image, would you call it uh, possibly um, uh, abstract or representational, not, or non-representational? So it's representational. And what degree of representation is it abstract? Uh, uh, idealized, representational, photorealist? Photorealist. So you see photorealism? Okay. So we're kind of whittling our way down. Um, what's the subject we're looking at? Is it, a, is it a design or is it a particular object? It's a letterbox. It's a letterbox. <laughs> right. so, it's, for, so for sorting and holding mail. So it's, it's an identifiable kind of object in front of us. Um, it's also maybe something that's not familiar to a lot of folks also, just sort of thinking about time-wise. Uh, it's, it's sort of an older uh, uh, era kind of communication. Um, okay. What's the, what's the format? Vertical, horizontal? So it's, it's a horizontal format. Horizontal. Okay. 
um, going into just looking at the at the the formal qualities of it. What's the what's the color scheme? What do you what kind of things? What kind of colors do you see? It's close to monochromatic. So it's got a kind of a monochromatic color color scheme. So it all stays sort of in a um, a, a warm orange uh, or yellow kind of uh, uh, monochromatic scheme. What's the texture like? Is it smooth, rough? Smooth, smooth. So we said smooth. smooth. Okay. How about um, is there a motif that that is in the painting? Rectangles are a motif that travels throughout. Letters and paper. Okay, so maybe a uh, curved diagonal. So there's the letters are at a curved diagonal. The contrast, the the horizontal and vertical of the of the letter box itself. Anything else? There's the illusion of the surface, the textures, the illusions of the texture. So there's there's a, a, an illusion to a wood texture and smoothness of paper. So it gives a sort of a more trompe-l'oeil effect, maybe? Okay. Um, how about design principles that we can see? So things like repetition and rhythm, are those, are those dominant principles? The repetition of the rectangle. The repetition of rectangles is definitely. Okay. okay, and different sizes of rectangles. So there's some variety. They're not all the same kind of rectangle. So it sort of breaks up the monotony of it. If it was a grid that was all the same, it would start to, to maybe become a little overpowering. Um, how does the media affect the, the, the material? It's egg tempera, um, so it, it's a particular kind of painting medium. How do you think that affects the way we look at the image? So, softer, so you sort of go into the painting more. So it makes it a bit softer of an image? It has a, has a matte finish, so there's no surface. You're not aware of the surface. There's no okay. sheen. And so it's a very, it's a very kind of matte, almost uh, diffused kind of surface. Maybe there's not a lot of reflection. Anything else? It promotes more looking into or through rather than looking at. So it, it, the, maybe the the media, the softness or the flatness, kind of brings you into the into the interior of it a bit more, or into the into the space a bit more. Okay. Um, let's see. Does the does the image communicate anything? Does it have a specific message or viewpoint? Kind of mysterious. But it's a sort of a mysterious quality to it? Okay. No strings, that's a letterbox with no words. Okay, so, so it's, it's a letterbox with nothing in it, and, and the, or the pieces of paper that are in there have no communication on them. So it's, it's kind of ambiguous. Uh, do you think it stands for or represents anything? Do you think this image stands for or represents something? We can skip on to the next question. How about this? Uh, <laughs> um, does the image physically or perceptually resemble or imitate what it refers to? Yes. Yes. So it does. It does imitate very closely or, or pretty closely uh, a letterbox, something something in the physical world. Uh, it has a quality that you could almost maybe go in and 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 touch it or feel the surface. Um, does the Im image signify or? Uh, a connect maybe a uh, physical or causal event, which means you know, does does it seem like it's uh, suggesting sort of an action or or reaction to something? I, I think it's um, it's expectant. I, I see something, a sense of waiting. So that so there's there's this, this this sort of energy about something maybe about to happen. Has just happened. Or just about ha to happen. Right. Yeah. 
Okay. Can we understand this image on a lot of different levels? Could it be a metaphor? Yeah. It's definitely. It's probably opened up to a lot of a lot of possibilities of interpretation. So it's probably strongly a metaphor. Um, just to give you some context, sort of the things that are happening, we've we've sort of gone through this cycle of analysis and, and analyzing the image from its very formal properties to maybe a bit more interpretive kind of things. Um, but we haven't really interpreted a whole lot more than just you know just sort of some basic ideas. But how about this? What, um, 1953. There's a lot going on in the world, um, a lot going on in the art world. Uh, so. In 1953, uh, DNA is discovered. The, the structure of DNA is discovered. Um, the Korean War is an armistice, which uh, may not uh, be, the, be the case much longer. <laughs> um, uh, Stalin died in 1953, and Khrushchev took over the communist uh, uh, Russia. Um, Edmund Hillary and, and Tenzing Norgay, uh, Norgay were the, uh, the first to summit Mount Everest in 1953. Um, let's see, Samuel Beckett. Uh, his, his play Waiting for Godot premieres uh, in, in theaters, um, which might have some kind of bearing on this. Uh, let's see, Hugh Hefner founded Playboy in 1953. Um, and Eisenhower was uh, elected recently, the year before, I believe, 52 was when Eisenhower came into, came into office. Um, uh, Joseph, McCarthy's, um, sorry, Joseph McCarthy's Red Scare uh, was sort of reaching a, uh, you know, a tight. Um, there was uh, Brown versus Board of, of Education, the civil rights uh, movement was, was getting underway. There's a lot of bus boycotts uh, in Louisiana uh, in the South during that time period. So there's a lot of civil un uh, unrest going on in the states. Um, in, the, uh, in the world at large, you know, there's, there's things going on. Um, like I said, the, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the sort of the, the, the world conflicts are either uh, beginning to, to calm down or getting you know getting um, started up depending on where you're what part of the world you're in. Um, let's see in the art world uh, some things that are happening that's pretty interesting. Uh, and Tooker's sort of a, um, uh, an artist that was um, respected and popular, but not as popular. He wasn't he wasn't sort of the flavor of the month or the flavor of the year. Um, and in the art world in 1953, it's sort of the peak of or getting near the peak of abstract expressionism. So we have people like Jackson Pollock, um, uh, 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 Franz Klein. Um, I can even I mean, actually show you some images of sort of what's happening. Uh, do you mind holding that for a second? So we've got uh, Tworkoff, Jack Tworkoff. Um, you can hold these up. Willem de Kooning, these are all paintings from 1953. This is the avant-garde that's happening in uh, New York, the, sort of the, the darlings of the art world at the time. Um, Jackson Pollock's, so we have got Jackson Pollock's uh, Ocean Grayness from 53, uh, this series of, of women that de Kooning did. Um, this is woman number four, um, and Torkoff's Pink Mississippi. This is in the United States. In Britain, the uh, first um, kind of meeting of like, sort of pre-pop art, uh, the, um, the group uh, that sort of was the, uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of precursor to pop art were meetings. So you have people like Richard Hamilton um, uh, doing collage art and working on sort of uh, the beginnings of, of looking at po uh, mass popular culture 
uh, mass products to, to uh, sort of critique um, uh, mass culture. In France, we have uh, Jean Dubuffet uh, with Art Brut, um, looking at primitive art and, and working on uh, ways to promote primitive art, uh, uh, art, art that's uh, made by untrained uh, professionals. Um, so this is the, the cow with the sublime, uh, sublime nose. Um, in Japan, we have the gutai, which is sort of pre-performance art, um, sort of a combination of action painting and performance. Uh, the gutai artists, uh, artists were uh, sort of um, uh, doing things like fluxus, where they would do performances, and sort of the residue from the performances became the, the art piece. So this is uh, uh, Shozo Shimamoto, uh, and he's actually using uh, glass bottles of paint and breaking them on the canvas as a, as a way to uh, explore painting or possibilities of performance and painting. Um, at the same time, what Tooker's doing, and what we're probably more familiar with uh, work that, Tooker, that George Tooker made were pieces like this, um, which are more sort of social paintings. Um, this is uh, Government Bureau, which is actually in the, uh, the light, the color's a little bit off from my printer, but you can kind of see the, the things that are more typical of, of, of Tooker's work. And you'll see similarities in, in his uh, painting behind us, the, the letterbox. There's a strong sense of geometry uh, and architecture sort of plays into the, the sort of uh, repeating of rectangles and strong geometry in these, in these pieces. Um, this one is actually the waiting room, which is owned by the um, Smithsonian American Museum up in, in, uh, around Chinatown. Uh, this is a really quintessential Tooker piece. And probably the one that everybody knows either from popular culture riffing on it or The Simpsons actually used in one of their intros uh, this image with Marge actually walking forward. But this is the subway from 1950. So uh, those are sort of the things that we, we know from, from looking you know, and thinking about George Tooker's work. Uh, maybe a little bit less social, but a little bit more uh, common were works like this. The, um, the lanterns, he did a series of, of these sort of uh, summer uh, kind of gardens and lanterns uh, illuminating figures. Uh, so the Lanterns, which is actually a later piece, he sort of did, did series of works that were several years apart. So um, this is from 1986, uh, this is an, a later one, and this is an earlier from 1958 called The, the Summer House. Um, and that sort of uh, gives you sort of a sense of where, where Tooker was uh, and what kind of work he was making. So this one, the, the, the image behind us is sort of right in the middle of, of uh, or the very beginning of his career. Um, he sort of started in the, in the uh, late 40s. Um, and as he got uh, further on in his career, the work became more uh, uh, what people might call um, uh, uh, not social realist, but, but sort of a dream realism or um, uh, there's people have used uh, magic realism as sort of a title for or, or description of the work, but it's not quite what he was. Um, it's sort of he sort of moved in and out of different areas. So it's sort of hard to, hard to pin down or hard to define. Um, so some of the things that I thought were interesting when I started to look at the work a little bit more in depth also were uh, just sort of looking at compositional devices that he used. And a lot of his works uh, sort of breaks down uh, the, the composition into um, sort of segments or, or, or locations for, for certain things. And he used uh, um, uh, sort of classic or traditional kinds of ways of composition. So when you guys look at this, do you notice anything about the composition that, that um, sort of makes it, it, makes it unique? Well, he's using the diagonal edges to move your eye through the picture, which otherwise would be very static. 
So it's using diagonals to move you around the, because there's so much right angles from, from, the, from the letterbox construction, the diagonals kind of move your eye around. So that you, have, you have these letters that sort of steer you around in a, in a circle. Um, And there's, there's contrast in color. The lightness of the letters uh, grabs your attention and moves you around. Some of the things I think are interesting is the way he uses the, maybe the, the rule of thirds. So he has a, the, the uh, vertical columns are, are sort of broken up into thirds for the, for the uh, composition. You have this door on the left-hand side that's sort of partially opened or just kind of cracked open. Uh, and right on that line is, is the first third. Uh, and it's sort of it's sort of a, a sort of a different feel, flatter kind of space than the right side, the two thirds on the right. Um, the second uh, uh, third is sort of right in this in the center kind of column of, of three similar sized uh, uh, cubicles, and then this this far um, this far right side is is uh, this, the last third as we go to the right. Um, also horizontally, you have uh, right about here. That's the eye level actually for the viewer is the is the horizontal third. The second one kind of happens down in here, right at the that sort of uh, flat letter, and then the last, the bottom third, is where these strong horizontal um, uh, uh, rectangles for 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 paper uh, kind of happen. Um, so there's so there's uh, you know sort of dominance of of, of sort of breaking things into thirds. Um, he sort of places us right. As a viewer, right on this on this line here, where there's a, uh, a a board that sort of makes a T, the eye level I said is right here, more or less at that that top shelf, a top horizontal shelf, and then places this directly in front of this this piece, so we see it dead on as, sing, as a single line. Um, so he locates the viewer in a specific place. Uh, what happens um, with the uh, the receding diagonals for perspective is they all kind of head up, up into this one point perspective over here, uh, just sort of off of this, this golden ratio um, uh, uh, intersection. There's, there's a little point right here where all the, all the diagonals from the paper and the, um, and the, the uh, uh, diagonals for the receding diagonals for the, the boards that go back in space for these sections of, of the, of the uh, uh, letterbox all kind of hit in this one spot. Uh, there's also two-point perspective. The doors and two-point perspective. So we have we have different areas of perspective points. Um, but what I think is interesting with the, with the diagonals to go back to this intersection here is it sort of puts you in this area of action. There's there's the letter with a sort of red dot and the keyhole are all kind of in that same location. So there's a sort of sweet spot of of things happening that gets you interested in sort of maybe possibilities for interpreting something. Um, you have a, a door that's partially opened. The keyhole sits right on the center line and just off of that first uh, uh, two-thirds of, uh, of the composition with that sort of flat space. Um, when we look at it, we see a, uh, a sort of strong light and dark in this, this open space. There's, uh, if you look and kind of squint through your eyes, you'll see that the shadows are stronger on the top left uh, diagonal or, or, or section, and there's light on the bottom left section. Um, so there's sort of this, this sort of mysterious lighting that happens, and this sort of that's pretty common in, in Toker's work that there's a, a light direction, but it's sort of unclear where the light comes from or what it's you know how 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 it affects the the work is sort of mysterious. Um, so uh, there's some really interesting compositional things that, that keep our eyes moving around. Uh, some are very subtle and, and some are very pronounced, like the letters are really pronounced that move your eye around, but other things are pretty subtle. Uh, so. Um, I guess 
um, if there's any, there's anything that anybody else can notice, maybe with the composition that I'm not picking up on. I notice the outside strip, outside edge of the painting all around is frontal to the picture plane. Right. It's frame, so it enhances the trompe l'oeil of the cabinet door right. coming and opening right. a little bit. So, so there's, there's a, um, you know, there's a, there's a frame that sort of sits on top of a frame, and it sort of flattens out, so it makes it feel like there's, there's a space you can enter uh, or, or, or grab into. When you guys think about trompe-l'oeil, do you think this is like a really high degree of trompe-l'oeil? When you, when you, if you think about, um, I mean, there's, there's, if, if, you, if you're familiar with trompe-l'oeil, there's sort of the 19th century masters, um, uh, 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 William Hartnett, uh, Harnett, I'm sorry, and uh, um, a few others that are sort of uh, people you think about maybe when you, when you look at trompe-l'oeil painting as sort of quintessential uh, trompe-l'oeil artist. I mean, do you think this is, if you, if you can think of works like that, do you think this is a really high degree of trompe-l'oeil? And we actually we have trompe-l'oeil back here with uh, uh, the painting behind us also. Um, you know. This one's striking to me. It seems to me that this one was designed in a way to control the challenge. That there's no writing, there's no design on the pieces of paper. Right. It keeps it simple in that respect. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, someone like like Harnett would actually have writing. There'd be more things to sort of to to fool us or to, or to be tricks. Uh, there's not a lot of trickery in this. He's you know he's showing us uh, an interior space that feels convincing or believable. Um, there's there's lighting that makes things look um, three dimensional, but there's not all the sort of tricks that, that somebody uh, like uh, Harnett would use, where there's where there's uh, a, a crease in the paper that's sharp edge that would make it feel very three dimensional, or, or a lot of strong shadows, or lots of uh, things popping out into space. So it's it's sort of a subdued kind of Trump wave, if I think about it. There's also limitations to the medium. Yeah, and, and that's tempera as opposed to oil. Right, right. Right. So, so the egg temper does it sort of flattens things out, and this is an egg temper with a, with a there's egg temper with a, a Venetian glaze over top of it too. So it's a very sort of subtle kind of of um, of uh, uh, shininess or, or whatever uh, kind of surface to it. The temper is the result of building up right. individual lines of paint, right. and so you're not going to get a right. surface. How many of you are familiar with egg tempera as a medium? So, so those of you that aren't, egg tempera, you basically have dry pigments that you, you uh, mix with uh, egg yolk. So you take the egg and separate the white from the yolk. Um, then you uh, break the yolk and uh, mix uh, with water uh, the dry pigments into it. And uh, so it's a, it's a, uh, um, a sort of uh, laborious process to build up an image. So he worked pretty small. Most of his images are pretty small scale. There's one, there's one um, uh, 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 large piece that he did for a church that he was a member of in, in, in uh, Vermont. It's a more ambitious piece. But most of them are sort of in this scale. All his, all his works are sort of in a, a kind of intimate or small scale. Anything else somebody can see that I'm, that I'm picking up on? Question: is, is the frame a part of the work, or is the frame something that was added after the fact? I'm not sure about that, whether the frame that's around the painting is, is original to the work or not. Um, some of the other works that I've seen at the uh, Smithsonian American have similar frames. A, a sort of uh, interesting biography is, uh, a biographical note is that uh, he and his life partner, William Christopher, were actually uh, furniture makers. As a way to, in their early in their early life, they uh, they uh, used that uh, income from making furniture. Um, so he was a woodworker. 
um, which is interesting. We have a Richard Archwager here also, who uh, uh, the piece behind us, um, which is a more abstract or non-representational piece, but he was also uh, a, a, a furniture maker. Um, and sort of at the same time period that, that um, uh, Tooker and William Christopher were making furniture, Archwager was in the same city doing the same thing. Um, but so there's, there's, there's a, uh, a connection to that. And I think it comes in the work too, that there, the, the sort of understanding of the structure of the, of the wood box and what the texture of wood looks like, um, those sorts of things contribute to his ability to sort of make a convincing sort of three-dimensional uh, 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 image or a representation of a sort of three-dimensional image. Um, so I'm not quite sure whether the frame, like, like, like you asked, is, is original to it, but I have, I have a hunch it is, but I'm not, I'm not 100%. Yeah. I keep coming back to the, the piece of paper on the door. All the other ones seem to have a job. They, they belong in those slots, right. but that one seems sort of provocative because it's pinned up but doesn't say anything. Right, right. Any, yeah, this one, this one is sort of strange to me. It has, it's, it's, it's pinned instead of in a, cu a cubicle or a cubby. Um, it also has a sort of almost cartoon red dot push pin. It's like a matte pin that's a little bit overgrown um, that, that sits on the surface there. So it calls your attention to it. That, and it's in that, in that same kind of sweet spot like I was talking about. There's a lot of things going on with the keyhole, uh, the intersections almost for all the, the, or the, or the vanishing point for all these sort of receding diagonals is sort of in that same area. So it pulls your eye over there. And it's such a, a, a sort of strange thing that happens in that corner. Yeah, if, if it wasn't if it wasn't there, you need a white over there. insert the rectangular insert so the double ones aren't identical, and it also it draws your eye, it balances the weight of all the boxes on the left side. It is it's a compositional device to pull your eye around. If you have all these all these sort of uh, uh, ascending or descending diagonal letters that are in these in these boxes. It moves your eye around. You have a few that are similar to it, that sort of flat one that sits back in the shadows um, that keeps your eye kind of circulating around. Um, but I, I think it, it is sort of a strange one to be over there, too. And that it happens on the, the partially closed door as well. So this seems like there's something more going on about it. And without it, there wouldn't be a white piece of paper past that boundary. I think besides composition, it sort of adds to the intrigue because that's the one piece of paper that you know there isn't any writing on. The other ones you might think, well, they might be at a certain angle that it's covered. Right. But that sort of tells you, like, no, these are blank pieces of paper. Right. That this, that this one specifically has nothing on it that obviously isn't because it's in, in obscured by shadow or distance. It, it's, it's sort of a mystery about why there's nothing there. It also has a different degree of intention about it. The other ones are resting, but that one's been stuck right. there. Right. So, I mean, so we've been looking at it now for a while. Do you think there's any other kind of interpretations we can come from? Just, you know, is there maybe a, a narrative going on? Is there, uh, like I said, some kind of metaphor that, that this might be trying to do? Well, it seems to be driving at sort of the futility of human communication much the way that his figurative work does. And, um, you know, that piece that's stuck on the door uh, that's blank, you know, you, you tend to do things like that when you want to communicate something to everyone or something even back to yourself as a reminder. And, you know, all these things just sort of seem slotted away. But you're not convinced that actually there's someone who's going to come and get them. Um, I don't know, it sort of reminded me of the end of Bartleby the Scrivener and the dead letter office line, you know, that kind of thing. Anybody else? 
I, I thought maybe um, whether he was influenced by and, and uh, the last name, I'm blank on the last name of the artist from the first half of the century, you know, his famous pictures, the, the people sitting around the luncheon that, you know. Oh, uh, Edward Hopper. Hopper, yeah. yeah Hopper predates most, just a little bit, but, yeah. but, uh, but there's definitely, there's uh, connections to him uh, stylistically or, or, or maybe just subject matter. I think there's definitely connections. Uh, Hopper and, and I think uh, Toker are both really good at, at architecture, kind of um, uh, really convincing uh, modeling of architecture or, or space, I think is really interesting. Waiting for what, and it seems fitting that this. You said this came before the other two, where he, there's all those people standing in a bureaucratic line. Right, right, yeah. This is this, some of them it comes before, some of them it's a little bit after. Yeah, but. so it seems like he's trying to go into that theme of like, what are we working for? What's this all for? Right. It's it's interesting that we we read in sort of a um, maybe a more bleak reading when we look at this. There's there's nothing really happy about this. You know, I might be happy to have a desk with nothing in it, it's, but uh, but there's but there's something a little bleak about these these uh, empty spaces and 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 letters that are, are pieces of paper that aren't going anywhere or have no you know have no message on them. Um, I think uh, one of my one of my uh, um, uh, books I like to read uh, when I think about architecture or about objects is the Poetics of Space uh, by Gaston Bacillard, and, and he talks about uh, corners, and, and, and these are sort of corners in a way. Um, these sort of cubbies have a, have a sides and a, and a recess back, uh, but they're open to the front, and there's these sort of spaces for you to go in with your mind uh, and, and imagine or to, to daydream. So these little, these little refuges in each one have their own kind of uh, uh, ability to kind of hold you in and, and make you daydream or ponder. And you can think about, you know, what the, the sort of detritus that's been sitting back in that corner, the dust, the, the leftover sorts of things from, from uh, you know, the past that sort of uh, make, you, make you wonder what's, you know, what's going on, what's the, what's the mystery here. Um, some interesting things about Tucker also is he was really avid at looking at lots of different kind of art and from all, all different uh, time periods, um, not just his contemporaries. And he looked at sculpture uh, for, for uh, not necessarily influence, but inspiration as much as he looked at other painters. Um, he looked at a lot of um, uh, painting from, Quattro, from the Quattrocentro, the, the, the uh, early Renaissance uh, or late medieval early Renaissance. Um, he looked at uh, the uh, um, the new new um, uh, not the new realist new object new objectivity uh, the German painters that are sort of between World War One and World War Two. Um, so he's sort of he's sort of picking from all over uh, for people that he that he responds to and and that comes out in, in the work in some ways the figurative work you can kind of see that the uh, the new object uh, new objectivity uh, kind of painting. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's sculpted kind of figures, uh, maybe from the Renaissance. Uh, this sort of sense of architecture, I think, goes back to the, arch the architecture that's sort of in the, uh, the Italian primitives and things like that as well. Can you, can you look at Joseph Cornell? But, uh, actually, it's interesting. I, I hadn't really thought about the time period with Cornell and him, but um, a colleague of mine was talking about them sort of being at the same time, the sort of peak, and it's, it's, it is sort of has that same kind of uh, uh, mystery to it that, that the Cornells do. The thing with Cornells we were talking about is that the Cornells uh, 
it's the juxtapositions, juxtapositions of these kind of uh, weird objects that, that make it sort of mysterious. Or this is uh, you know something we experience all the time. The only thing that's sort of mysterious about it is the the lack of writing on the notes or the lack of information on the notes. Um, but otherwise, it's just a very ordinary kind of thing. I mean, if you were if you were uh, uh, you know from a time period when we actually had desks that had letter boxes or or you when you, you know we don't mail much anymore, so we have uh, an email that sort of takes over the, the, the place of a, of a mailbox in an outbox, but um, you know, if, if you were uh, coming up in the 50s, this is sort of what you would, you would interact with all the time. So it's interesting how something that's sort of a mundane object uh, could have such a, a mysterious kind of quality to it or a mysterious power to it. Um, so I'm sure, I'm sure that you know, they, I don't know if they knew each other, but they, but they were, he was um, cognizant of, of Cornell's work. And he was living in New York, so he would have seen what was happening with the, the art world um, and all the different sort of branches of the art world at the time. Okay. So, yeah, one more. Well, I was wondering, I'm, I'm really coming up with uh, blanks for names, but do you know if he was looking at any of the British realists from around the same time? Um, you know, who sometimes dealt with religious subjects or, um, you know, wartime themes, things like that. I, I know we showed one here in 97, and I cannot remember his name. Right. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, not, I'm definitely not a, an expert on, on uh, Tooker, but uh, it could be, like I said, he was very familiar with what was going on uh, in, the, in the art world around him, so it could very well be. Okay, well, I want to thank you all for, for coming out and helping me with this uh, kind of interpretation of the work. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.